You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So today we're going to talk about the issue of union salting, which is the practice of putting paid union organizers into the workplace to unionize unsuspecting workers from within. Now, we've covered this briefly in other episodes. However, my guests today had an article in Newsweek earlier this week entitled, Big Labor is Getting an Assist from Far-Left Activists which gets into an area of salting and the persons behind it that we haven't talked that much about. Joining me today is Frank Ricci and Keith Williams. Frank is a labor fellow at the Yankee Institute and has a very interesting background, which I'll let him explain in a few moments. Keith Williams is a returning guest to Labor Relations Radio and is the vice president at the Center for Independent Employees, which is a group that helps workers. And I'm going to include links under the audio portion of this episode. But without further ado, here's Frank Ricci and Keith Williams. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So Frank Ricci and Keith Williams, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. And Keith, you've been on the podcast before, but I think it would be good for both of you to kind of introduce yourselves and your backgrounds, because I think we all have a similar background, just different, um, different launching pads, so to speak, and what your respective organizations do. All so right. let's start with Frank. I'm just going by alphabet here. Oh, no, that works. Uh, Peter, it's an honor to be on your show. I, I'm an avid listener, first time being on the show. Uh, my name is Frank Ritchie. I'm the Labor Fellow for Yankee Institute in Connecticut, but I work on state and labor, uh, national labor issues. I prevailed in a United States Supreme Court case, Ritchie versus Stefano. I retired as a battalion chief in the fire department for 22 years in the city of New Haven, and I retired as the union president. Nice. Keith. All right. Well, thanks for having me on again. Couldn't have been too bad the first time if I got invited back, right? That's true. Uh, <laughs> Keith Williams, uh, I'm with the Center for Independent Employees. I'm uh, basically the, the senior VP over there. And Center for Independent Employees serves employees who uh, wish to decertify uh, their union. And it's, it's basically all employee-driven decertification type stuff. Um, I was a teacher for 21 years, got into... All of this, uh, I guess, technically in the 2013-14 school year when my district went uh, agency shop and 45 of us learned what that was. And we basically pushed back, got agency fees dropped from the contract um, at the end of it and uh, became the only district where that had ever happened prior to Janus. Uh, So as I I tell people when I'm on a panel with Mark Janus or uh, Rebecca Friedrichs, who also had a Supreme Court case, I basically say we did... We did what they did. We just didn't need the Supreme Court to do it. Um, so that was that was kind of my first foray into labor. And then uh, since then, I've been uh, engaged in employee rights notification type stuff, and uh, more recently on the on the uh, private sector side, uh, helping with these certifications as well. 
So, so all three of us kind of have union backgrounds, um, or at least Keith, from your perspective, having been involved in getting unionized and fighting against mandatory fees. But both of you wrote an article, I want to say it's about a week ago, um, or it might have come out earlier this week, on big labor is getting an assist from far-left activists. And I thought we could talk about that a bit because um, it was an interesting article, and especially if people read further down in terms of what is happening with unions, union salting, and the groups that they're aligning with. So I don't know who wants to who wants to start first, but um, essentially the the article was about the Teamsters aligning and working with the Democratic Socialists of America on this salting program. So, so I'll jump in, Peter. So Megan Portfolio, who works at Yankee Institute, saw an advertisement for salting, and it was the Teamsters, and it, it was hidden in plain sight. It wasn't like they were trying to hide it. The Teamsters and the Democratic Socialists put out an advertisement essentially to the general public saying, we're looking for individuals to hire as salts. And I was like, this doesn't even make sense to me. I mean, I actually walked the picket line with the Teamsters when Jimmy Hoffa was still, his son was still the union president. And, you know, the, the Teamsters had that, that image of baseball bats, and now they got the image of man buns. It just doesn't even fit with, <laughs> with what you would think of a Teamster and it doesn't fit with what most people don't have a problem with unions with if they're just advocating for wages, hours, and working conditions of workers. But this salting, this pernicious practice of salting, this isn't about wages, hours, and working conditions. This is about wealth distribution, redistribution. It's about power and control. And, you know, Keith actually attended these meetings so he could give a firsthand report on what was occurring and what they were really looking for. So let's let's talk about for the listeners what is a union salt? Because I think um, a lot of folks, if they're HR attorneys who are listening, they obviously know what salts are. But HR folks don't always know what union salts are. Okay, yeah. so a, a salt is an individual who, unlike the trades, and I'll let you explain how it originally started with the trades, Peter, because I think you captured that perfectly. But a salt in, say, logistics, say UPS, Amazon, things of that nature, or shops that aren't unionized yet, the union will hire somebody as an organizer. They'll get hired by the company, not, not letting on that they're working for the union. And then once they get hired in the company, their job is to basically sow discontent. So they rally the employees to causes. Now, the employees are also don't realize this ruse because a lot of times the salt won't even tell them that they're a paid agitator. They'll think that this somebody who's just came in, it's organic, and they're concerned about the working conditions, and they literally work to sow discontent to try to organize so that they can control strategic parts of our economy. Uh, Keith? Yeah, I think that was the big thing that I took away my my eyes were getting bigger as the call went on, just in the sense that this is to Frank's point, it's not just wages, hours, and working conditions. They're talking about, you know, the analogy of the evergreen container ship in the Suez Canal. 
um, and kind of painting the picture of, you know, that was a, when that container ship blocked the Suez Canal, it was $9 billion a day, $400 million an hour. Imagine what kind of leverage we could have if we could shut down logistics in the case of the Teamsters or shut down healthcare or shut down education. Um, so those are the three areas that they they really said openly that they're targeting is is logistics, healthcare, and education, and and focusing on those because those are systems that they can leverage to uh, to really take advantage of their their position. I mean, it's a system that they can control. Um, so to Frank's point, we're we're talking about a lot more than the traditional union objectives this is this is getting openly marxist at this point and i think that's that's something that really i think shocked me and would probably shock a lot of union members so i've got a couple questions if they're talking about logistics and a company like ups and were they to be able to shut down ups for example that i kind of get because that would disrupt supply chains and all that but what is their thinking in terms of how they can shut down education or how they can shut down healthcare? Well, they drew a distinction between sectors of the economy and reproductive sectors and reproductive, not what you would automatically think. They yeah, I just went about, there. So, yeah, yeah no, <laughs> they were they were talking about and they actually broke out. They were talking about being able to reproduce and essentially indoctrinate kids to a more militant. And that's their word, a more militant style of organizing. So they wanted to control education, healthcare, and logistics were the three that they put out right off the bat. Okay. So that like, let's stay on health, uh, healthcare. They're talking about people coming into hospitals, being more militant in the hospitals. Yeah. They're saying nursing schools and stuff like that. They're saying they want the, they want to essentially train the activists of the future so that when they become a nurse, they can use that militant and Marxism training to militantly organize the the nurses to control that sector of the economy. It was a really disturbing call. I mean, Keith, weren't you kind of blown away by just the language? And it was just so open. It's they're not even hiding it anymore. That's what was really mind blowing. Yeah, and a lot of the it's funny. A lot of the strategy is there on the website. I mean, it's not like. It's not super secret. It's just that, you know, we don't habitually go to their websites and check out what they're up to. And uh, evidently it's something that's that definitely bears more attention. And and uh, I think we do need to be paying attention to it. There's not to get not to get off off onto other things, but I think in a broader sense, the, the real concerning part is when you when you start to connect the dots between uh, Abruzzo's latest memo on non-competes, which her fifth point specifically mentions non-competes could have a chilling effect on salting because right. uh, a salt can't bounce from job to job, right? In the same sector may, may not be able to with a non-compete. And then you look at what OSHA is doing with their proposed rulemaking to allow uh, union organizers, representatives back into OSHA inspections of non-union companies. It's clear they're, they're positioning the, the whole of government to enable unionization um and now you're pulling dsa into the middle of it as well so really concerning yeah the education component um i've done a couple episodes one with a teacher another with well actually two teachers but one also has a uh, group about 
their main focus is trying to help teachers avoid the wokeness. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting with that gentleman in that he was talking, and he's a private school teacher. So we always focus on public schools and you know the radicalization of teachers and all that sort of stuff. He was saying it's as bad, if not worse, in the private schools, especially the elite schools, in that um, what those schools are primarily used for by folks with a lot of money is they don't like the way the public schools are going, so they'll remove them, put them into private schools, and they are a pipeline into Ivy League colleges, Harvard, Yale, et cetera. And those colleges are kind of doing a top-down. These are the type of students that we want, and they happen to be more, quote, woke. That seems to be the the buzzword of the day. So the schools that are feeding that pipeline are automatically modeling those values to push the students up. And the parents don't really care because they see that as a networking and that pipeline is valuable to them. And that was fascinating because I was thinking, you know, most of the issues that we have with education are more on the public school side. And he's saying, no, it's, well, it's and I, private. I think that's, that's sort of our, our default assumption because there's so much, if you want to make it into a binary right, left kind of a thing, I think, you know, the right is always pushing for school choice. And right. I think we start to think, well, choice means we can avoid this and go to that. But the reality is, yeah, your charter schools, private schools, they're all graduating teachers from the same universities. And if they're hearing similar things in the same colleges and universities, those those new teachers coming out are going to be, you know, towing the same line, um, whether they're public school, private school, charter school, wherever. Well, and if you tie the two together, um, the salting that we've seen with regard to Starbucks, for example, uh, Jazz Brizak, who is a Rhodes Scholar, went to work for Workers United, and she and Richard Bensinger are the ones that started the whole Starbucks union movement. And she went into Starbucks as a union salt. Right, right. And, you know, and so she's got this, mm, I want to, I might as well just say socialist ideology or idealism that she carried on to the, the floor. And you see a lot of the baristas that are unionizing, they've got, may not be graduated, but they've got some college education behind them. Mm-hmm. which goes to that whole radicalization. Well, Peter, it goes back to that. The conservatives, unfortunately, kind of had their heads in the sand while the socialists decided to take a long walk through our institutions and really infiltrate and put people in key places. It doesn't take, you know, most of the, take the police and fire unions. Most of the police officers and firefighters, I'd say more than 50%, are actually conservative. It's the leadership and what we find a lot of individuals, I'll put the construction trades in there too. You know, there, there's a saying there, Democrats at work, Republicans at home. Um, right. And even though this should be a nonpartisan issue, I have no issue with unions advocating for wages, hours, and working conditions. But that's, they essentially became the arm of one political party and one ideology. And their goal isn't really to benefit the workers. It to benefit those at the very top, which is, you know, that socialist or Marxism agenda. Well, this is not new. You know, if if you go back in labor history, the socialists or the Marxists, if you will, because there's anarchists and a whole bunch of other groups out there 120, 130 years ago, 
um, they have always seen unions as the kind of boots on the ground or the jackboots, if you will, to push that agenda, which is why if you go back to pre-CIO within the AFL, Gompers and the leaders of the unions fought the socialists so hard. And there's a there's a very famous speech that Gompers gave. I want to say it was like right before he died, might have been 1918, but he just lambasted the socialists, you know, said that they're unworkable. He studied them. He's, you know, known them, been friends with them. And, and their whole, whole ideology is bad, you know, and I'll have to find that quote, but it's, it's a whole paragraph on him just excoriating them at one of the AFL conventions. But then the CIO came along mid depression and that's where you started seeing and I hate to use the term reds, but that's what it was. They started coming into the union movement full force within the CIO. And it wasn't until after World War II that they got banned, which was, you know, part of the Landrum, not Landrum Griffin. It might have been Landrum Griffin Act back in 1959, but they banned the communists from the AFL CIO for a number of years. And the other thing for employers to consider is it's completely legal to salt in America right now. Yeah. It's it's encouraged by the government. I mean, it's just mind-blowing that they allowed this to happen. And here's the thing. The salt is actually taking away a job from somebody who wants and needs a job. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> and their their role, as you mentioned earlier, is really to sow the seeds of disruption or agitate. And, yeah, that's where, not in all cases, but you see a lot of campaigns. Somewhere in there is a assault that's been there for three or six months. And we had, we had a couple um, during the pandemic out in, in the West that union salts had been in there. And several of them from the DSA um, in two different facilities for months. And once the employees found out who they were and that they're getting paid to organize them, that was, um, it was interesting to watch how quickly the employees flipped on them. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. They're collecting two paychecks. Well, and they've been lied to or misled into thinking, you know, this person's really caring about us and he's he's getting paid or she's getting paid the whole time they've been here. And it's a strange dichotomy, and it's a strange way to get people to buy into your philosophy by just starting out lying to them. It, it makes absolutely no sense, but right. they're effective at it, unfortunately, and their goal is not stopping. If, if, if they have one attribute, it's persistence, and the UPS strike has, you know, even though it was adverted, their eyes are on trying to get Amazon completely unionized, completely within their control, and completely ex- continue to expand in that sector so that they can bring some control to logistics. Yeah, I was having an interesting conversation the other day about um, the whole UPS strike slash negotiations. They didn't go out on strike, but the whole I I don't want to say the whole reason behind it, but a big portion of that reason reason that they were fighting so hard to get a good contract, A, they had been sold out by Hoffa Jr. back in 2018, but B, Sean O'Brien knows that in order for him to unionize Amazon, which is the real goal, they've got to get the wages and benefits up, 
especially the wages at Am, uh, at UPS because Amazon's starting wage for their warehouses I think were dollar to dollar uh, fifty higher than UPS's in their contract, and that so now presumably Amazon will come back at some point and probably raise their wages above UPS's, but haven't seen anything on that yet. It's coming. Right. So, Keith, you listened to the the uh, episode or the the training that they did with the salts. Yeah, yeah, really. Was there a lot of people on there? Um, probably about fifteen ballpark, fifteen to twenty. Okay. Um, you know, you had folks presenting um, as well, so it wasn't all attendees necessarily. Some of them were presenters. Now, was this centered just for the Northeast, or were there people all over the country? What's really interesting was, you know, Frank reached out about this, and I thought, okay, well, sure, yeah, um, see how it goes, see what's going on. And then in the course of some other conversations, I discovered a similar training was being held in North Carolina as well. Mm. Um, so, you know, again, there's it's not just a one-off. There's, there's a strategy that's emerging here, and um, it's – it's clear, like we said, they're they're focusing on logistics, healthcare, and education, um, specifically because you know, as we said, they're systems. Um, so yeah, fascinating to listen to. Um, actually, educational. I did learn a little more labor history, which was fun. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> always, they, always learning something. Yeah. Did they throw Eugene Debs out there and his uh, running for president as the Socialist? Yeah, no, no, none of that. None of that. It was more uh, some Teamsters history, um, but uh, yeah, it was it was it was informational as well as uh, concerning all at the same time. So, looking to duplicate this strategy across the country, you're going to see this, you know, gain steam from you know Connecticut to California. And I mean, the thing that's just so disturbing is I don't think the rank and file Teamsters realize that there's this alliance with the democratic socialists. I mean, I, I just, I just don't picture the, the, the rank and file factory worker truck driver. That's a teamster thinking that that's a good idea. It just, it, it just defies logic. I think there's an education gap there that they don't really know what their leadership is doing. That's probably across the board. I've, I found in my years as a union rep that, most workers, they just want to go to work, get paid, go watch the football game, you know, take their kid to little league, stuff like that. They're not really interested, nor do they necessarily know like who the international president of the union is, who the officers of the union is, are. Um, they, they have a tendency to know who their local leadership is, but they don't know what's going on in DC. And so when you see like the teamsters, for example, now Sean O'Brien He's been all over the media since he took office, so most Teamsters around the country probably know who he is. But, you know, if you were to ask, you know, who the president of the steel workers are to a steel worker, they may or may not know. So let alone what they're doing day to day, other than taking money. I, I think that goes back to, you know, the discussion that we had about teachers unions um, in a previous episode and just the idea that, you know, for, for 
I think most people, they view their union as their local and really right, nothing right. more. Like, you know, where the dues are going aside, you know, I and I didn't even know what the dues distribution was when I was teaching. But at the time, our, our local got 4% of our total dues. The, the state and national were taking 96% of the dues, yet the local does most of the work. So I think, you know, to the extent that people start to look at where the money's going, um, that answers a lot of their questions. But if there's still a perceived need there to have a union, um, it doesn't offer you a lot of options in the unified due structure. Um, you know, it's it's take this take this one thing from the top down or or go without. Um, so I think that's as unions start to get a little bit more extreme in their rhetoric um, and their alliances. I think there's more of an opportunity for those discussions about kind of reinventing or, or going back to the basics of, you know, unionism. What is a union? Simple collective bargaining, keep it local kind of a thing. Absolutely. I mean, to, to keep it local is, you know, I'm okay with workers having representation. It's all the other stuff. And when you have unions, you know, using all the language of democracy and transparency, I always say to a union member, well, if they're for democracy and transparency, ask them to send you a copy of their credit card bill, not the profit and loss sheet that's already massaged. Ask for your copy of your credit card bills for all your union leadership, and it's going to probably be an eye-opening experience. Sure. Steakhouses, transportation, all that stuff. You know, the the interesting thing about um, your article, and especially with the DSA partnering with the Teamsters, the DSA, uh, I want to say it was about two years ago, they partnered with the uh, United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers, so that's the UE, which is a fairly left union. It's been around since the 1940s. They used to be run by communists, all that sort of stuff. They partnered with them to develop this Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, or EWOC, they call it. But it's is they've done a, a whole big push towards that. In the West, they're partnering, the DSA's partnering with Unite Here, which is the hotel workers union, restaurant workers. Um, and it seems as though the DSA is just like spreading their pixie dust or whatever they're spreading over to all these other unions that you wouldn't normally see, especially industrial unions, Teamsters. Well, yeah. I think they also see it, the Democratic Socialists, I think they also see it as a guaranteed revenue stream. Because that's the one advantage of the union is that money's continually coming into their coffers. So for the Democratic Socialists to team up with that creates a creates a revenue stream that they're trying to end up diverting into their coffers. I mean, I think, or if it's not going directly to them in the partnership, they're being able to utilize funds to get their message out and to get their propaganda out to union leadership. Well, see, now that that's a problem that. Um, you, and I have not seen any financials, you know, pushing money, union financials, pushing money over to the DSA. But eventually, I would think that's going to show up on some LM reports. And so that begs the question, okay, who is fu- who is funding these salts? Like if we're putting salts into Amazon or Starbucks or whatever, who's paying the funds? Or are these folks really just members of the DSA getting paid by, and I'm thinking of Jazz Brezak specifically, um, getting paid by the union 
although she's politically aligned with the DSA, working for that union. Well, that'd be a way to hide it as well, is to make sure you're getting the funds from the actual union to the individual. Unfortunately, the LM2s and all of that government reporting, most rank and file members don't even know what they are. Yeah, that's true. They have no clue what they are. Would would you find that to be true, Keith? Oh, 100%. Yeah, and it's it's always it's always fun to give someone an LM2 for the first time when they've never seen one and just give them a highlighter and turn them loose for an hour. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but I think you know, talking about the strange alliances, I, I almost think too we can expect to see more of this kind of I'll say the emboldened uh alliances between corporate big labor and DSA and, and some of those types of groups, because I think as we move towards more finance unionism, they don't have to rely so much on member dues. I mean, ultimately that's still the bread and butter of the union is, is member dues, but as they're diversifying their assets, um, you know, they have other revenue streams coming in and, and, you know, they, they do the calculus, they, they run the numbers and, they may not have to listen to members as much anymore at some point. You know, if, if they're having a good investment year, maybe we can afford to lose a few to reposition our, our market. We see that in the teachers union owns a high rise. Yeah. Oh, really? Is that their, is that their headquarters or they just own it as a real estate investment? It's their headquarters, but I'm sure they probably rent out space to other unions. And uh, I mean, it's a full high rise with a parking garage underneath. So they're they're very smart financially. Yeah. Well, it's you know it's the old um, the old term the Teamsters had for the headquarters down in Washington D.C., which I didn't see until probably the mid two thousands. But the Marble Palace, like if you go downtown D.C., just two blocks off, I think from the Senate Building, is the Marble Palace. That's the headquarters for the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. And you go walk around the sidewalk, and the whole thing is marble. And it's like, wow, this is the palace. Paid for with that was paid for with member dues. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the 70s. That's yeah. back when the mob controlled the Teamsters. The um so I guess the the question is like there's not a lot, and Keith, you just kind of hit on this a little while ago. There's not a lot employers can do, but be aware of it. Because they can't discriminate against union salts. It's legal to go in and plant somebody into your you know, company who's there to basically screw up your company, take over the supply chain, for example. So right. but I think I think to the extent that you can make employees aware of what salting is, you know, and I yeah, I yeah. given given my work now, because most of what I do is employee side. Um, you know, we're, we're basically the foil to a bad union. There's, there's a lot of ways to get unions in, you know, the very discussion we're having today is paid union organizers coming in and organizing a workplace, but there's no mechanism to get them out. So the game's a lot different as you both know, if it's an employee driven campaign on either side. And I think that's, that's probably the best defense at this point is just educating everybody on, hey, look, there, there may well be, you know, undercover operatives uh, befriending you and your 
coworkers who are collecting a second paycheck on the side. Right. This isn't their, this isn't their full-time job. The, uh, I have a, a guest coming on on Monday um, and I'm not going to go too much into it other than because she's works three jobs, but she was an employee at a company um, that had a union campaign about a year ago, close to a year ago. And they had a union salt in there. Actually, I'm not sure if there's a union salt, but the lead organizer who is an employee is a either DSA or socialist party member. And so this employee actually sent me the, the young lady's podcast out of New York and it's full blown socialism. She had a couple of other union organizers onto that one podcast and they were from the UFCW. And so their fight is within the UFCW to actually get rid of that corporate unionism and, you know, basically member uprising more socialist, if you will. Um, it was an interesting podcast to listen to aside from this young lady who may be coming on, but it was just, you know, that, that DSA or at least socialist influences in those unions. And if they're, if they haven't taken the headquarters over, they're trying. Which for the corporate union bureaucrat, you know, they're coming for your jobs. And that's important, Peter, what you just said about kind of making that distinction between the corporate union bureaucrat and the rank and file member. I think that that's something that conservatives make the mistake about is they they're always attacking union members and not really attacking the union bureaucrat or, you know, big labor, they always seem to alienate the rank and file. Keith, can you speak to that? <laughs> You're going to softball one to me there, Frank. Is that how that works? Well, that's, that's you know, one of my big, I don't know if I can say a contribution. I'm, I'm probably a gadfly in the policy space because, you know, a lot of the ed reform discussion has pitted parents against teachers. And right. To the point where I was, I was reading, it was kind of funny, but not, you know, I, I read a great piece um, by uh, Robert Pondicio not too long ago, who, who wrote about how basically the, the right has alienated teachers in a lot of ways. Like, you know, we're, we need to remove tenure, public schools are failing, teach, you know, public school teachers are all Marxists and we kind of get lumped together with all the libs of TikTok. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it kind of leaves the leaves, I'll say the middle 60, 70% with nowhere to go, right? You're going you're gonna to stay with the devil, you know, who's promising to protect your paycheck and, and, you know, put money on the table. Um, but then there was another kind of a rebuttal to that editorial and I won't say who it was, but I just, I, I rolled my eyes probably collectively with a lot of other teachers, uh, who are like-minded. And it was basically, no, we don't have a problem. The ed, ed reform movement doesn't have a problem. It's just these disgruntled teachers who feel like they're being attacked. And at that point, I, I pulled up the, and I, I know this is a, this is a, uh, a podcast, but there was a, a uh, cover of a Washington Examiner uh, not too long ago that had a, a tattooed teacher. Uh, she was, you know, she had this real butch haircut and she had a neck tattoo of Barack Obama and she's screaming at the kids and the parents. And that was the, and it, it literally said on the cover parents versus teachers. And so, right. 
you know, it goes back to this, we need to acknowledge we have a messaging problem before we can move forward, right? The first step is knowing you have a problem. Um, so yeah, Frank, I think, I think you see that in the first responder space. I certainly see that in the education space. Yeah, it's not a, it shouldn't be a partisan issue. I mean, it comes down to good policy, treat people with respect, but I mean, socialism hasn't worked anywhere. You know, everybody, you, you hear kids today and I'm like, I don't want to date myself, but I'm like, where has it worked? Just tell me where it's worked. But it'll be different this time, Frank, right? That's the. Well, part of the problem, um, and we are in a probably tribe, I, I want to say it's getting worse, but it, and I think it has, but a tribalistic type society. You're either in this tribe or that tribe, right? Right. And tribalism is part of social uh, socialism, collectivism. So you're you're lumping people into groups. And to your point about the teachers, I saw this happening probably back in, I want to say Scott Walker might have been one of the first in the modern era where they started lumping all union people into this basket and mm-hmm. you know passing a state law that eradicated public sector bargaining. Well, Frank, to your point earlier, you know, firefighters, first responders, PD, you know, they are typically not your, quote, left-leaning people, right, as individuals, the rank and file, at least. Maybe the heads are. But when you're when you're taking this just broad paintbrush and painting everybody as, you know, pinko left or whatever, it's a problem because then those people who are stuck in the middle within those groups are like, you're labeling me now. And then you may remember this maybe five years ago, the red for ed, the whole right. red for ed where the teachers were protesting is interesting how they targeted which States, but you know, there's thousands and thousands of teachers storming the state capitals all wearing red. And I saw friends who are not necessarily left leaning, but you know, in that whole red for ed movement and right. knowing that it started out from a leftist, you know, trying to, you know, don't bash the teachers and we need respect and all that sort of stuff. And the, and the right to your larger point, the right just doesn't get this. And it's the politicians primarily. Yeah. I mean, everyone's in their respective silos, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's part of the issue. There's not a whole lot of us that, you know, that cross over, like we're sitting here now and I'm thinking about the backgrounds of the three people on this call. Like most people either, are in the policy space, you know, they got a political science or an econ degree and did an internship in DC and have spent the last couple of years writing white papers or, you know, doing something um, in a nonprofit or, you know, they've, they've done blue collar work and kind of worked their way up through the ranks or, you know, in the case of the teacher, I don't know of any teachers that, well, there's not many of us anyway, that have left mid career, you know, 20, 20, 21 years in, um, to go do labor policy. So it's, you don't have a lot of crossover out there. There just aren't a lot of us. Um, and so everybody's kind of siloed and, and believes what they want to believe and, and isn't, uh, isn't willing to budge too much or it's, if they are, if they are willing to budge, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of inertia. It's, you know, old habits die hard. Right. And Peter, Um, I think you're doing great work and there's not many people in the labor space that are especially as knowledgeable as you and that get out the message because this isn't the sexiest topic. And most people don't realize (laughs) that labor affects everything from your property taxes. I mean, 
to your education of your kids to your health care. I mean, labor affects everything. And there's very few knowledgeable people that are out there talking. So I personally really appreciate you having us on your platform because I listen to you and I get a lot of information from this podcast. But more of the policymakers need to be listening to to this podcast. Well, I appreciate it. I think the um, knowledge comes from just being long in the tooth, so to speak. So, or as I had somebody say, somebody used that phrase long in the tooth with me. I was like, I'm so long in the tooth. I have fangs, but it's, uh, you know, it's having been around and having studied labor relations and, you know, particularly as a former union rep and Samuel Gompers was my idol. And so when I see the today's union leaders moving so far away from Gompers and his belief that it was pure and simple unionism. It was, it was not to get into all of these ideological issues. And in fact, you know, today's union leaders probably think of him as a far right wing activist, but it was economics. You know, if, if, if you look at labor economics and his opposition to having immigrants coming in, well, the reason for that is purely supply and demand. If you, if you have limit your supply, higher the demand, higher the wage rates and, you know, the unions have flipped on this whole thing probably back in the in the mid to late 90s. And that was um, when John Sweeney, Richard Trumka, and Linda Chavez-Thompson took over the AFL-CIO. They got rid of one of their first acts was to get rid of the ban on communists in the AFL-CIO. And then the second was, and it was probably two or three years later, they flipped the AFL-CIO's opposition to immigration. You know, and now we've, it's just kind of morphed into this whole leftist ideology. Well, well now I, there doesn't have to be an adult in the room. I mean, I was a union president. I've been in those rooms. There, Nobody ever has to look at the financial implications. Everybody just agrees with each other. You got this issue. If you're going to back me on this, we'll collaborate. Where, as Keith once famously said, you know, individuals that just have some common sense, and our four free markets, we're always competing where right. if you're on the left or the far left, you don't have to be the adult. You don't have to think about the economics. You just got to say, hey, the answer is always found in somebody else's pocket. Let's just agree and work together. And that's what we're what we're seeing. And it's easy to work with people who agree with you. And that so there's never any pushback because money is never an issue because it's always in someone else's pocket. Yeah, well, the. the- the left thinks collectively, the right thinks competitively. Right. That's the, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's that collective hive-like mentality. And if you look at the different groups on the right and the left, if, if you look at the left, all of the different groups out there, whether it's moveon.org, the DNC, you know, the unions, they all get together at these confabs and they come up with their, you know, their blueprint for nothing, for lack of a better term. But you look at the right, and you've got these big right, you know, conservative groups and all that stuff. They half of them don't even talk to each other because they're all competing for the same dollar. They don't pool their resources and all that. And that's I recognized this about ten years ago. It's why I got kind of away from hanging out with DC people. But it's uh, it's really just a it's it's hard to imagine how well orchestrated the left is. But you'll get tidbits of it in the articles and all that. The whole endorsement of Biden from the AFL-CIO right after he announced his um, 
candidacy for 2024, people on the right don't understand the whole endorsement process is so that they can free up the PAC money and the boots on the ground. And so that's why all these unions are doing it sooner rather than later and kind of, you know, getting rid of the competition with RFK and all those guys, all those guys. Although I did see that Gavin Newsom may be running. He's, he's established a pack. So I don't know what that's all about. When I started in the union, it was about, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So you want to be actively engaged with the politicians. I completely understand that. But now it's moved to, we want to control both sides of the table and right. where they're just backing the ideology. They're not really trying to get a seat at the table. They want both sides. They want to control it. They want to control the narrative. And it's just, it's not good for America. And in the end, it won't be good for the American worker. You know, it's fascinating about this. I've been um, in this kind of the conversation, the underpinnings of this is about power. Um, And right now we're in a phase coming out of the pandemic as well as the uh, retiring of the baby boomers, where workers have a lot of power. Um, The DOL's JOLT report just came out earlier this week, and there's 9.6 or 9.8 million job openings throughout the United States. And so in the churn, you know, there's churn underneath with people leaving or getting laid off, et cetera. That's like at four or five million. So there's still a good amount of labor shortage going on. And that until something is there to replace it is going to exist. You know, we have fewer baby boomers in the market where, you know, they're all retiring now. The successive generations are not having as many kids. The newest generation doesn't even know how to, what, you know, gender they are. No offense. Um, But, you know, we're seeing this declining labor market, which means we're either going to have to immigrate more workers into the country or AI is going to have to to supplement them. Right. Do you think, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. I don't want to cut you off. Do you think that I like, there's a, there's a tinfoil hat part of me here. So I don't want to play my hand too much, but who I really am, but yeah, I, I, I get into some, I'm not too conspiratorial, but there's some things that really make me wonder. And I can't help but wonder if, the mandates, you know, when we were back during COVID, you know, the vaccine mandates, healthcare and education had the greatest issues with the mandates, right? I mean, think about how many people left healthcare because of mandates. I mean, it was almost a, I guess I can't help but wonder, was was that part of a broader strategy to, I'll say, call the herd and create an environment where unionization could really take hold because now you've got the remnant of employees who are understaffed, overworked, you know, they've complied. Um, I think that's part of it. Um, but there's a couple other components to that. And if you, if you look at the fight for 15 for almost a decade earlier, about nine years, you know, the whole fight for 15 movement, we go into the pandemic and what does Congress do? They give out $600 a week. What is $600 a week divided by 40 hours? $15 an hour, right? So now, and you've, you've anecdotally, you've probably heard these stories where workers were making more to sit home than they were at work. 
So then they go back to work and they're resentful. And, you know, the Republicans, again, party evil, party stupid, you know, they just went along with it, right? And so I think that's part of it. You've got a bunch of workers that were on that retirement cusp that were like, yeah, I'm done. I don't need to be mandated. I don't want to work with these people. Life is stupid, whatever. So they left the workforce early. And then now, and this is where I think the equilibrium. So right now it's, you know, it's a worker's environment, so to speak, buyer's market, whatever you want to say, seller's market. Um, now we've got this whole AI thing happening. And I've been deep, I've been doing deep dives into this for the last couple months where there is not that I've found so far a field or occupation that will not be touched by AI. And so I had an economist on back in May and, and everything he has said was rather dystopian is coming about. I've seen articles confirming it, right? So you've got coders out in California, Silicon Valley, two, $300,000 a year. They're going to be replaced by AI. You got bankers on Wall Street doing investments for trades that are, you know, two to three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand dollars a year. They're going to likely get replaced by AI, and all within the next two to five years. If they're not putting money into the economy, i.e., buying new cars, hiring workers to, you know, reconstruct their kitchen cabinets or whatever, that trickle down effect is going to be extremely disruptive to the market. And I don't mean stock market, I mean the economy, right? And potentially government ending. Because if you don't have the tax base from the majority of the workers who pay the bulk of the taxes, how are you going to fund your government schools or your roads or your fire departments? And I'm just like, I'm hoping I'm not being too chicken little-ish here, but it's um, it's something. And with that, we're all going to buy uh, 100 acres and go live off-grid somewhere. Right. But I, to the point of the labor market, though, it's that. So we have a labor shortage. Eventually, we won't leave, need that labor anyway. Right. And that's where your equilibrium will come back, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm just... Expounding on that. Peter, that's very depressing. <laughs> okay, see, at my age, I just find it fascinating. So it's, I'm just watching from afar. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back on something Frank said earlier, and I actually think labor is sexy. I think it is a sexy topic, and it's fun to be on here with, I'll say, I'll say two OGs of, uh, of labor. You know, I'm, I'm still kind of a noob in all of this, but, yeah, it's just fascinating to, to dig into it. And the deeper you go, the more interesting it gets. So. Yeah, it's well, and I, you know, I found my love for labor relations as a union rep. So that's been my entire adult life. And it's um, so I've always enjoyed talking about it. And, and, you know, sometimes people listen, sometimes they don't. But you, you both brought up one point that really drives this home on why social socialism is bad in the labor movement, where it becomes more about the ideas than the people. We talked about the vaccine mandate and regardless of how you're how your listeners view the mandate, what you have to realize is the union was there to protect the employee. 
So when somebody gets fired, that's the equivalent of the death penalty in a labor action. So people pay dues and unions represent them. And I never fault the union for representing somebody because they play the role of John Adams. They play the role of the defense attorney. And there's countless union presidents out there that have advocated for people that have driven drunk and beat their spouse. That doesn't mean the union agreed with those things, but they had a fiduciary responsibility to represent them. And what we saw with the mandate from New York City to Seattle, take firefighters, for example, that got fired who came to work during the pandemic when there was no vaccine. And now the mandates are over. So everybody agrees the policy is no longer in effect. But yet to this day, as we sit there, while everybody's forgetting about the pandemic, firefighters in New York, a handful, and about 70 firefighters in Seattle have not been hired back. So Where's the union? And the union, they made speeches, and then they just caved, and they never fought for their members that paid the dues because the idea became bigger than the actual individual worker. That's yeah. a great point. I mean, there's, there's people, there's teachers that are dealing with that as well in New York City and Los Angeles. There's still thousands of teachers that are out of jobs for the same reason. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I guess I wonder why those firefighters or those teachers haven't sued the union for failure to represent them. Or if they have, I haven't seen the articles about it. Yeah. There's, there's some ongoing cases. Um, and actually there's, there's a pretty active group in uh, both, uh, both New York uh, and the teachers for choice group in New York. And then also a, a group in Los Angeles as well that have numerous cases trying to claw that back. Um, thing is, New York, I think, kind of followed suit with L.A. L.A. was a lot more, go figure, a lot more extreme. Um, and so, you know, I think California being what it is, I think the stretch there might be a little bit greater than than what it is in New York. But, yeah, there's there's some cases going right now. I don't I don't know the details, but probably worth looking into. But are they suing the unions? Because that's, to Frank's point, you know, that to me as a union rep is you're not advocating for that member. Right. And so if, for example, a worker gets fired for whether it's violence in the workplace or, you know, whatever the issue is, the union has to investigate the grievance or the, or the charge and then file a grievance. They don't have to, but, you know, if they don't, they're, potentially liable for failure to represent the worker. And again, they don't have to file, but are they, are they in fact defending in any way, shape or form those workers who have been fired? I believe the Seattle case is incorporates the union. I'll have to, I'll have to research that further, but it seems that a lot of firefighters reached out to public interest law firms that represent, you know, the liberty and freedom movement. And no one's really stepped up to, to help them, which was, was been really surprising. Um, there's been a couple cases where public interest law firms took in like the military mandate and represented mil the military, but we haven't seen that on police and fire. They did the initial injunctions and they lost, pretty much everybody lost their injunction. So we really haven't seen workers go after the union. And it's not because they don't want to. I just think it comes down to a cost issue. Right. Yeah, that's true. Unless they get somebody, you know, one of the law firms that 
help workers without charge freedom foundation or somebody else like that. Yeah. One of the, one of the issues you run into there is I think they're hesitant to do that because, you know, if you're, if you're laying out a, a lawsuit, you're going to sue everybody. You're going after everybody involved. And, you know, one of their things is, is lowering costs of government. So if you're suing, you're suing the state and local government for, you know, in wrapped up with the union, um, that's that's kind of a hard justification, maybe to your to your uh, funders to go back and say, hey, we're 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 driving up costs for state and local government because we're suing them. So. Right. I guess if any of the um, employees, and I'm trying to think if any would, uh, Frank, you may know this from Fire PD. Um, if any would fall under the jurisdiction of the National Labor Relations Board, the employee, it's it's himself, herself wouldn't necessarily need to have somebody representing them because you file a charge free of charge with the NLRB. Of course, the NLRB would probably dismiss it, but you know, the next level would be appealing it to DC. It's just, yeah, most, most fire and police, they have to go through their public state, labor, state labor board. Yeah. But a lot of that, when they file the DFR, the failure to represent the standard is so high that it's few and far between where the employee actually wins against the union without a, a smoking gun. We're, we're seeing a good case in Hartford, Connecticut with a teacher now where the union actually sent an email and said they wouldn't take their case to arbitration. It wasn't about a vaccine mandate, but they said they wouldn't take their case to arbitration because they weren't a union member. There was a smoking gun and that case is being adjudicated as we speak. Hmm. Um, but, but it's very, very hard to overcome that legal standard at a state labor board. Right. And partially because the state labor board has been appointed by usually governors that the unions help get in. Right. The vicious, the vicious circle. That helps. Well, gentlemen, what else are you guys up to? Well, I'd like to come back on a future show and talk about Yankee Institute's initiative. And one of the things that we're doing is we're trying to bring balance back to the bargaining table, and we're providing training um, at no cost for department heads, managers, elected officials, board of education members on the collective bargaining process and how to negotiate at the bargaining table, how you can treat employees fairly, but also take the handcuffs off the superintendent or the department head to actually manage their workforce and to allow elected leaders to make good and informed decision. Because a lot of times the people on the right or conservative people, they think they know the answer and they don't even understand the game. And it usually doesn't work out well for them. So we're trying to educate people, but I'd love to come back at a, at a future time and talk about that initiative. Yeah, we after we get off, we'll, we should uh, book that. <laughs> Keith, what are you guys up to? Well, right now we're uh, we're heavily involved in the in the education space, as you can imagine, uh, just with some of the new legislation that has that has popped up uh, in the last few months, and uh, focusing on a couple of states in particular to help teachers, and this kind of goes back to actually what Frank was saying as well, um, to help teachers um, not necessarily remove a union, but to uh, remove the NEA and or AFT uh, from their sphere of influence. 
And um, of course, if, if they have an independent local, they also need um, good attorneys, they need negotiating skills, uh, which is something you know Frank and I have talked about as well. Um, and they need a school board who understands that dynamic and, and how to work with work with them. Um, so that's the other piece, you know, as we were talking about talking about all of this and, and strategies and, and kind of changing narratives, unions get, have gotten the most bang for their buck in school board elections for years. And all you got to do is flip a school board and you change the whole administration and it doesn't take long until you completely change the school. So, um, you know, working in the education space, um, particularly with teachers in a few states in particular, but then um, private sector side, you know, got a couple active cases going um, with, you know, within the private sector. Um, but our, our real focus right now is trending toward education. And like we were talking about at the beginning, um, some of the private schools, charter schools uh, that are under threat of unionization right now as well, and and how to how to navigate that and and uh, keep everybody happy. Yeah, I always found that amazing that the NEA and AFT, the teachers unions in particular, the biggies, have opposed charter schools for decades. You know, we don't want them, close them down all that sort of stuff. But since they failed at that, they're like, okay, well, if we can't kill them, let's just unionize them. Sure. Sure. It's, it's if, right. If we can't get rid of them, we'll just use them as an income stream. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Which is consistent with what we heard on the call, right? Healthcare, logistics, and education. Yeah. So there you go. Well, thank Frank Ricci and Keith Williams. Thank you for coming on labor relations radio. Appreciate it. This fascinating article, fascinating conversation. We are in this fundamental transformation across the United States, and and some of us, you you guys included, are watching it happen. So, and thank you, gentlemen. Start being the process. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for thanks for having us, guys. Yep, thanks. honor to be on. So that was Frank Ricci from the Yankee Institute and Keith Williams from the Center for Independent Employees talking about the DSA and union salts, as well as some of the politics going on within the United States and their attempts to disrupt the supply chains. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.